Proverbs chapter 9, and uh, this morning we come to the end of chapter 9, which really chapters 1 to 9 in Proverbs serve as the, the introduction to the whole book. Over the next five weeks in, in July, um, we're going to be working through uh, more topically through Proverbs, uh, looking at friendship next week, then family, money, uh, going to look at counsel, how do we counsel one another wisely from Proverbs, and then the fifth one, I'm not quite sure yet. I'm dithering between whether we think about speech and words or we look at the topic of providence from the book of Proverbs as well. But that's what's coming up over the next five weeks. Um, I know some of you will be coming and going in that month, but I'd encourage you um, to, to, to keep track of those. Hopefully they prove um, helpful for you. There are two kinds of people when it comes to choosing food from a menu. There's the, the ditherers and the deciders. The, the ditherers take ages to scan the menu they, they ask everyone else what they're having before they even look at the menu. They panic when the waiter comes over because they think they need to give their order. And they always ask to go last when the, the waiter comes. Uh, they, they stall the waiter by asking lots of questions and what's your special today and what would you recommend. And then even when they get their food, they get food envy at what everyone else is eating. Uh, then there's the deciders. Uh, they only need one look at the menu and they have their decision made before the waiter even comes to ask for drinks. I'm not going to ask which one you are. You'll know which one you are. Maybe those around you will be able to help you um, discern which one you are. But whether we are a ditherer or a decider, Proverbs presents us with a menu this morning, and there's only two options. There's only two options on the menu that Proverbs presents you and me with this morning in chapter 9. There's only two meals on the menu. And that's not just true of chapter 9, that's true of the whole book. Whether you're a dither or a decider, Proverbs 9 presents us this morning with two dinner invitations, two menu options, a feast, as Derek has read, a feast prepared by woman wisdom and a feast prepared by woman folly. The two invitations, the two feasts are really representative of the choice between wisdom, which is the ability to make godly choices in life, that's what wisdom ultimately is, the, the ability to make godly choices in life. It's the choice between wisdom and the choice between folly. It's between two ways to live, two paths, two destinies. It's a choice between ultimately life and death. The big question that Proverbs has been pressing upon us over these last number of weeks, and which really particularly does in chapter 9, is which feast are we going to eat at? Which option on the menu are we going to choose? Which way are we going to live? Which destiny are we going to live by? Which way are we going to go? And here's the reality. There's no third option. If we reject one, we choose the other. There's no third way. If we reject one, we get the other. That's why we must make the right choice, the wise choice. And this isn't a one-off choice, okay? As Christians, as people, this is a, a daily choice. This is a choice to keep eating something, to, to keep choosing something, to keep walking a certain way. It's not just a one-off choice. It's a continual daily choice between two things. So the, the big thing we want to see here this morning together is this. Fear the Lord and choose wisdom's invitation rather than follies. It's kind of really straightforward this morning. Fear the Lord and choose wisdom's invitation rather than than follies. First thing we see together in chapter 9 then is this, wisdom invites me to dine with her and live. If you look down at verses 1 to 6, we have the invitation from woman wisdom. She is our host, so to speak. 
She, she's built her own house. She is hewn, which is just a fancy way of saying she's cut seven pillars. She's built her house. It's big, it's grand, and the seven pillars really is representative of perfection. This is a big, perfect, grand house. Pictured here is a woman who is skilled. She is strong. She is rich. She is hardworking. And dining with her will result in us um, absorbing those traits. See too her hospitality, her generosity, and her preparation. She's slaughtered her beast. She's mixed her wine. She's set her table. We see there that the, the meal that she offers is one of meat and of wine. And it's not just any ordinary wine. It's, it's wine that's been mixed, mixed with things to make it sweet. Representative here of the fact that the meal that she offers is one of substance. It's a meal that will strengthen us. It's a meal that will satisfy us. Compared to, as we'll see in a moment, the, the meal of water and bread that woman folly offers us. And in verse 3, she prepares this meal. Verse 3, she sends out her young woman to call people to this feast. The young women really are representative of those who would teach us God's wisdom, whether it's from the front here, whether it's through godly parents, whether it's people in church, whatever that might be. She sends out people to invite uh, and to call to her feast. And look who's in, invited in verse 4. Whoever is simple let him turn in here. The invitation here is not for those who have got it all figured out, those who think they've got it all together. This is an invitation to the simple, to those who lack sense, to those who need help. It's not a meal for the proud or the pompous or the arrogant. It's a meal for those who humbly recognize they need wisdom, that they need God's help. It's a meal for the adulterer, the sexually impure, the sluggard, the young man lacking sense, the addict, the gambler, the gossiper, the fool, the sinner. That's who's invited to this meal. And there's no dress code. There's no cost. There's no conditions here. The invitation is to come. And what's an invitation to do? Come and serve at this meal? No. Come and observe the meal? No. Come and clean up? It's an invitation to come, in verse 5, and eat, to take a place at the table, to feast. It's an invitation to gain wisdom. That's what the picture is giving us here. An invitation to come and eat, really, the, the rest of the meat of the book of Proverbs. We've only got to the end of chapter 9. There's a whole bunch more chapters. It's an invitation to come and eat the rest of this book, to come and eat the rest of this meal, we need God's wisdom, and the, and the good news is for us is that it's sitting on a plate here ready to be digested and to be satisfied by and to be sustained by, and ultimately that will give us life. An invitation here to eat meat and to drink wine, it's not just a picture of gaining wisdom. We see this image throughout the whole of Scripture. It's a, one of the Bible's main ways to communicate to us God's invitation to salvation and eternal life. We see that in the Old Testament. Isaiah 25, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. We see it too in Isaiah 55, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. It's an invitation, not just in the Old Testament, but goes into the New Testament as an, and is extended by Jesus himself. We see that in the, the parable of the great banquet in Luke 14, 
And then Jesus himself says in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This invitation, Jesus' invitation, illustrate the spiritual hunger that each one of us has and a hunger which only Jesus himself ultimately can meet through his body and through his blood, which he shed for us on the cross in order to make salvation freely available to us. He's paid our debt. He's paid the price for our sins so that the feast would be free. What do we need to do to sit at this table? How do we RSVP? Verse 4, turn. Verse 6, leave. We need a change of direction. The feast is there, is waiting for us. All we have to do is turn inside. We are to leave our old way of life. That's what verse 6 is getting at, to leave our simple ways and turn into this house and sit at this table. This is a picture of what the Bible calls repentance. Turning from our sin and turning to Jesus and walking in a new direction with Him. Turning from our sin means asking forgiveness for it, laying it out on the table honestly, asking forgiveness for it, having Jesus remove it away, and then turning towards Him and walking in new life with Him. It means putting our trust in Him, the one who's lived the life we can never live, died the death we deserve to die in order to give us the gift of eternal life that we can never afford. Often we don't turn. Often we don't leave, do we? Maybe two big reasons for that. We prefer to live by my way and my rules, and we continue to do that and not turn away from that because, firstly, we don't grasp the awful judgment and eternal death that awaits us if we don't turn. And secondly, because we fail to grasp what we gain that what we gain far outweighs what we would turn our back on. We fail to grasp the, the, the seriousness of the judgment that we will face if we don't turn from our sin, but we also fail to grasp that what we stand to gain far outweighs anything we would ever turn our backs on. Repentance, the act of turning from our sin and turning to Jesus, leads to joy. And in these verses, repentance here means that when we turn from our sin and, and turn to Jesus, we're turning to a feast. We're turning to something so much better. One commentator that I read uh, this week says this about verse 6. God is so good, he even makes repentance into a feast. Sometimes we think of repentance as this kind of gritting your teeth, grinding your teeth. I've got to, and it is, but what's on the far side of repentance? It's a feast. It's joy. It's sitting at the table and ultimately being with Jesus for eternity. Verse 6 tells us that when we turn and when we leave, it leads to life. What does this mean for each one of us? Well, it means that wisdom is a mouth-watering meal. Do you think of it that way? Do you think of wisdom as a mouth-watering meal? It's a mouth-watering meal that we get to eat. It's there for us. The invitation has been sent out. The table is set. We must eat this meal to live. 
So let's digest the, the book of Proverbs. Let's invest our lives to gain God's wisdom through Solomon and ultimately through Jesus. Let's listen and learn from our, our parents, from those who would teach us, from those who in the church family would seek to invest God's wisdom in us. Let's do everything we can to eat this meal. Let's remember that our foolishness doesn't disqualify us from sitting at this table. It's ultimately because of Jesus we can. And in fact, there's those who recognize that they've been foolish and are unwise who are invited to this meal, who will benefit from this meal. So come and see the wisdom that God's Word has to offer us in order to help us live rightly. And consider how all the ways that we have been seeing in Proverbs, all the ways that Proverbs counsels us to live, uh, the, the joy that that brings, the satisfaction that that brings, which this meal represents. How much better is it when we live um, in our marriages faithfully and don't commit adultery as we've been seeing? How much better is life when we, when we work hard, when we use our money wisely, when we guard our hearts, when we trust God and not our own understanding, when we avoid temptation, when we avoid foolish cries, when we don't create conflict? Living by God's wisdom is the best way to live. It's the most joyful way to live. It's the way He ordered our world as we thought about last week. That's why we should sit at this table and eat this meal. What impact does this have for our life together? Well, let us ask the question, is this invitation from Women Wisdom, is this the kind of invitation that people feel they get from our church? Is this the invitation that people feel they get from our church? The invitation to live by God's ways, the invitation to live by God's wisdom is not drudgery and it's not burdensome. It's a free feast. Is that how we talk about it? Is that how our emotions express it? And it's ultimately an invitation to Jesus. So, so let's joyfully proclaim its, its attractiveness, its beauty. Let's show a watching world what it looks like to live by God's wisdom. And as we saw in verses 4 and 6, let's remember that this invitation includes a call to repentance. That's an essential part of this invitation a call to leave our old lives behind. We need to take that seriously. We need to live that out. We need to help one another walk in repentance, ongoing repentance, not just salvation repentance. We need to be bold and courageous enough to call people to repentance as we share the gospel with them, as we seek to help one another live by God's word. If we're not telling people or calling people to leave something, then we're not calling them to the feast that's on offer. And as a church, we need to model repentance. We need to model the humility that's evidence, evident here in these verses, particularly when we act foolishly. So the invitation's before us. The table's been set. There's only one response. It is this, fear the Lord and say, Yes, that's what we see in verses 7 to 12. Wisdom invites me to dine with her and live. Fear the Lord and say yes, okay? You don't need to think about this. Fear the Lord and say yes. Two responses in verses 7 to 12. It's the response of the scoffer or the response of the wise person. So what happens when wisdom, when God's word, when God's ways collide with a scoffer? Verses 7 to 8. They hurl abuse. They lash out. They hate. 
They hear the word simple and lacking sense and think, excuse me, what did you just say to me? You're calling me simple? You're calling me, you're saying I lack sense? You're calling me a, a sinner? I'm not a sinner. I'm not unwise. I'm not, I'm not stupid. I'm not as bad as the slugger or, or the gambler or the adulterer. Who do you think you are saying that to me? What kind of invitation is that? Then there's a the response of the wise person. They're confronted with wisdom. And look down how they respond. They love wisdom. They listen to the invitation. They take it up. They learn from wisdom and they become wiser. They hear the word simple and lacking sense and sinner and they humbly say, yes, Lord. Ask me. Ask me. I need your wisdom. I need your instruction. I want to live. Please teach me. How could those responses be so different? Verse 10 tells us, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. It's how Proverbs begins. It's how the introduction at the end of chapter 9 ends. It's to be the ongoing heart posture of those who want to get wise and live. Fear of the Lord. That's the difference between a scoffer and a wise person. If we don't get that bit right, then the rest is a waste of time. We can spend our whole lives in God's Word. We can spend our whole lives in the church. We can get all the godly wisdom in our heads we want, but if our hearts don't fear the Lord, it's a waste of time. The authors, uh, Fee and Stuart, in their helpful little book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, they say wisdom is making godly choices, and they kind of comically say, if we want to make godly choices, then how can we do, do that if we don't know and obey God? kind of fairly simple. If we don't fear the Lord, how can we possibly make godly choices? We need to know Him, we need to fear Him, and we need to obey Him. We will only view ourselves rightly and live rightly in this world when we have a right view of God. So fear of the Lord is recognizing that He is the Creator and we are creatures that He is the all-wise one and that we are not, that He is, verse 10, the Holy One. He is the Holy One and that we are sinners. When we recognize that He is the Holy One, how could we dare to scoff in His face and at His wisdom? In our first uh, week in Proverbs 1, we thought of this definition of fear of the Lord, which I find helpful. Um, by a guy called C. Bridges, is this fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his Father's law. Fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his Father's law. We are to fear the Lord, but the book of Proverbs and the whole Bible shows us that the context in which that fear plays out and which that obedience plays out is one of father-son father, daughter. So we are to fear the Lord, but it's to be an affectionate reverence towards our Father's law. A helpful way to think about fear of the Lord, another helpful way is humility. Proverbs 15, the fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. And what does that lead to? Well, verse 11, 
for by me your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. Fear in the Lord leads to life, at least to abundant life now and eternal life in the future. Verse 12 there, if you look down, emphasizes that each one of us needs to respond to this personally. We have an individual responsibility to respond to this invitation. And whichever response we make, we will either reap the benefits if we're wise or we'll reap the consequences if we're scoffers. So we need to choose wisely because each one of us individually will have to give an account for the path we chose, for the invitation we accepted, for the lives we lived. Don't think that the wisdom of others or the choices of others will cover you. Don't blame others for your foolish decisions. So verse 12 is telling us. Don't despair when teaching wisdom to others if they choose to reject it. Because some will. Maybe many. We're called to be faithful. We can't make decisions for people. And don't despair when we as Christians still mess up and act like fools. Because we will. I know I do. Remember the good news of the gospel, which is that we are all by nature and by choice scoffers. We are all scoffers towards God. We are arrogant. We re reject Him and His wisdom. We stick two fingers up at God, which is the essence of sin. And verse 12 tells us that in our sin, we are there therefore must bear the consequences for that. We must bear the consequences of sin, which is judgment from God. Yet the good news for the scoffer and for the sinner is that we don't have to bear that. Jesus alone bore that for us. Jesus on the cross bore the punishment for our sin. He absorbed the wrath of God against our arrogance so that we might live. It's the good news of the gospel. Jesus came not to save the wise and the righteous, but the simple and the sinner. That's what he came for. That's who he came for. That's who he invites. And he invites us to come to him, to get low either for the first time or on an ongoing basis. We need to come to Him. We need to, to get low. And then in light of His grace, in light of the fact that He has borne that judgment for us, we can now live wise lives. He's given us new hearts. His wisdom is now embedded on our hearts, and we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live wise lives. So if you're a Christian this morning, living wisely is not impossible. You'll still mess up. But God's wisdom is now embedded in our hearts and we are empowered by the Spirit. So take heart. Keep choosing to fear the Lord. Keep choosing to pursue wisdom. So fear the Lord. Don't be a scoffer. Be a wise person. It leads to life. What about our life together? How do these verses impact our life together? Well, given that we are still sinful, given that we are still so often simple in the words of Proverbs, we must put ourselves in a place where we can be corrected. We do that personally by reading God's Word, looking in the mirror of God's Word, but we also do that as God's design through being with one another, through being part of the church. So if you don't want to go down the path of the scoffer, don't isolate yourself from the church. Don't isolate yourself from God's people. If you aren't in a position to have people speak into your life or you have people around you but you don't let them speak into your life, then you are maybe already on the path of the scoffer. Get off it. We need correction. We all need to change. Change is a good thing. 
And God has made change a community project, not a solo project. So make sure we're surrounded by those who are willing to humbly correct us. So surround yourself with people and then be willing to be humbly corrected. Not just in the Christian life, not just in the church, but in the workplace, in the home, in marriage, in school. Be willing to be corrected. Don't be a scoffer. Proverbs 12, verse 1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Okay? ESV comes up good in that verse. He who hates reproof is stupid. We understand that word. And even if the correction ends up being unfair or given in an ungracious way, a wise person's first instinct is not to lash out, but to humbly listen. So let's be employees, let's be spouses, students, church members that model humble correction and repentance. Scoffers do not make for a salty witness to a watching world. Humbly be corrected and then humbly correct others. We're called to love and exhort and admonish one another. We're called to gently restore one another. And we're to do that humbly with gentleness and to do it wisely. That means we correct one another according to Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, all Scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. Okay, that's what we use and for training in righteousness. It means when we seek to correct one another, we need to learn when to back off. That's what these verses are telling us. They add nuance to the call to correct one another. There are some people who just, if you, start, keep, if you keep going down that road with them, you're going to get in trouble with them. They're going to harm you. We need to be wise when it comes to our correction. We need to know when to back off and leave it to the Lord and to the work of His Spirit. Verses 78 also should remind us that we shouldn't be surprised if people don't respond. We shouldn't get, have our feelings hurt too easily when we try to correct and call someone to repentance and to the gospel and they don't respond. And it also tells us that we should prioritize learners, not scoffers. If people aren't responding to God's word and to the gospel, we need to prioritize those who are willing to sit at the table and gain wisdom. We also see in verse 9 here that we are to be people who get wisdom and grow. Are you that kind of person? Are you the wise person who wants to still be wiser? Or are you settled for being simple? Let's be people, let's be a church that wants to grow, that wants to be hungry and increase in learning, not settle for being simple. And maybe for those amongst us who aren't Christians or who are finding their way with that, let me encourage you to embrace the reality, all of us to embrace the reality of our simple ways, of our need for wisdom. The world might call that humiliating. The Bible calls it humility. It's not humiliating. It leads to life. It leads to riches and to honor. It leads to grace and mercy, not to disgrace and dishonor. And as you come in humility and repentance, we as Christians are right there with you. We should be there with you. We never outgrow or graduate humility and fear of the Lord. So let's embrace fear of the Lord and embrace humility. It leads to life. So wisdom, woman wisdom has laid out her invitation. There's only one response. But what happens if we choose to reject it? 
What happens if we choose not to fear the Lord and say, no, well, we're left with the other invitation. Wisdom invites me to dine with her and live, fear the Lord and say yes. Or thirdly, dine with folly and die. Verses 13 to 18. It's a very similar invitation in many ways. It looks very similar. Woman folly is also in the high places in the towns. Remember we thought last week there will always be two voices competing at any given time in our lives, in any given place, in any given moment. She too is in the high places. She too, verse 16, invites the same people. They're competing for the same people. She invites a simple, and she's inviting us again to a feast. She's inviting us to a meal. But look at the differences. Woman wisdom comes across as dignified, and we saw that particularly maybe in chapter 8 last week. Yet woman folly here in verse 13, she's allowed. Other translations call her brash and rowdy. She's seductive and she's ignorant in verse 13. She knows nothing. Compare that to the industrious, generous, skillful, hospitable woman wisdom who's just sent us an invite. Woman folly here too, verse 14, she sits at the door. She's just sitting on her seat. She's not hewing, cutting out seven pillars. And importantly, consider the differences in the food she makes. She has made no effort, no preparation. She offers bread and water compared to meat and wine. Her water is stolen. She offers to eat the bread in secret. She tries to sell her feast as a thrilling experience, even though it's so poor. She promises, if you eat this, honestly, it'll be sweet. It'll be pleasant. Why would we ever choose this meal over the one that woman wisdom offers us? Why would we ever choose water and bread over a perfectly cooked piece of sirloin steak and the finest of wine? Am I making you hungry? Answer, because our hearts are by nature sinfully foolish. She appeals to a perverseness and twistedness in our hearts that loves what she has to offer. Our hearts are sick. They are hard to understand, and she appeals to that sickness. There's something about our hearts that desires the secretive and the seductive and the sweet allure of cheap, warped, and perverted things that give us momentary pleasure but will ultimately lead to significant pain and dissatisfaction. It's a tendency, a desire that Kanye West captures in his song Addiction. He says, why does everything that's supposed to be bad make me feel so good? Everything they told me not to do is exactly what I would do. There's something in the human heart, even though it knows something is bad, wants to do it and finds that it feels so good. In that song, he speaks of the rush of lust and of secrecy and spontaneity. That's exactly what she's offering. She's offering a rush. She's offering secrecy. She's offering spontaneity. She's offering pleasure and an experience with sin and folly. So let's ask ourselves this morning, 
What foolish feasts are we most tempted to indulge in? What foolish feasts are we indulging in right now? Where are our sinful desires deceiving us and pulling us in? For Kanye West and his song, okay, it was money, girls, and weed. That's what his addiction was. That was what woman folly was offering him, and he was falling for it, hook, line, and sinker. He asked the question in his song, what's your addiction? Is it money? Is it girls? Is it weed? I've been afflicted by not one, not two, but all three. Not commending Kanye West as someone you should necessarily listen to, but he culturally captures that tendency in our hearts. And in interviews, he's spoken of how sex and weed and alcohol have destroyed his life and his family. The chapter ends with verse 18, a significant warning. Solomon here lets us hear the invitation of woman folly, but he doesn't let her have the last word. He wants us to know the danger that that invitation poses. He graciously wants us to know the invitation that danger, the, the danger that invitation poses. He wants us to snap out of that deception and that innate desire for the secretive and the spontaneous and the sinful. He reminds us in verse 18 that what so often tastes delicious is ultimately deadly. Look down in verse 18. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So the question stands before us, what we've considered these last number of weeks, what the rest of Proverbs and the rest of God's Word ultimately points us towards. We stand before this question, and it's a daily decision, a decision that will determine our destiny. Will we dine with wisdom and live, or will we dine with folly and die? Will we sit with scoffers and dead people at the table of woman folly, or will we sit with the wise and those who have eternal life at the table of wisdom, woman wisdom? Will we sit with Jesus and dine with him at his table? He offers us all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He offers eternal life through his flesh and blood. So fear the Lord and choose wisdom rather than folly. Choose Jesus' invitation. His invitation to come, everyone who thirsts, come without money and without price. Incline your ear and come to me and hear that your soul may live. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you and recognize how often we choose folly rather than wisdom. How often we choose to dine at the table of folly than to avail ourselves of the treasures and the goodness and the satisfaction of wisdom. Please forgive us. Please guard our hearts. Please keep our hearts. Please help us on a daily basis to make wise decisions to live according to your godly ways. Father, thank you that in Jesus there is forgiveness, there is help, there is hope. And as we seek to live these things out together, help us to encourage and exhort one another on the path of wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.